Well, good morning. I'm grateful for the leadership, for the privilege to share with you this morning. Um, if we have any visitors, hope that you'll let us get to know you better. Um, we have snacks and coffee across the way after the service. Uh, Pastor Steve is is on uh, out for the next two weeks, so um, don't let my suit and my trendy haircut fool you. Um, uh, actually, I think it was supposed to be our elders teaching. It was Ken and John, but uh, I don't think John was so crazy about the new hair requirement. But um, anyway, you didn't have to. Well, this morning we're going to be focused on one aspect of the Trinity. Uh, it's the filling of the Spirit. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, what a privilege it is to be here this morning. I ask that you would take your word and plant it deep within us this morning. Not just for our own knowledge, but that we might be able to glorify you in spirit and in truth. Will you, will you do a work here today that, we'll just, that we wouldn't leave here the same way we came in? Cause us to be influenced, that we would be doers of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're almost to the middle of another year. The days are just clicking off. And we don't know what lies ahead. But we can be sure of one thing, that there will be pressures. Pressures in regard to ministry, pressures in regard to our time, our home life. Some of us are new parents, and we're just trying to figure things out as we go. Um, some of us still have our jobs, uh, but we feel the pressure of, of performing. Some of us don't have jobs, and we're feeling the pressure of this economy. Others are uh, retired or facing retirement, and we feel the pressure of managing uh, on a fixed income. And besides all these, uh, there's many others, I'm sure, uh, but there'll be emergencies that we haven't uh, anticipated. And so the question is, how do we live in times like these? Well, one essential element of living in times like these is the filling of the Spirit, it's a very basic but necessary concept when we talk about the Christian life and the filling of the Spirit. You know, in my last course of seminary, uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks, he introduced the class like this. He said, Congratulations, you're all completely adequate to be utterly useless. And I was so blown away by that I just, I missed the next 15 minutes of what he was saying. And, uh, but he's, he's absolutely right. We cannot please God on our own in any way, shape, or form. Christ says in John 15, 5, that you can do nothing apart from me. And so I'd like to walk us through the filling of the Spirit in three categories today. The first category is, what is it? What does it mean? When someone prays, Lord, fill us with your Spirit... What does that mean? The second one is how can we be filled with the Spirit? And the third one is what does it look like? What are the results of being filled with the Spirit? 
Now, there are primarily two ways in which the Spirit works in the believer. And this isn't our primary focus for today, but I felt it was important to distinguish the, uh, the two uh, ways that, that the Spirit works. The first one is the baptism of the Spirit, or the indwelling of the Spirit. And this is when Christ takes the believer and places him in the body. It's a single, sovereign act on God's part at the moment of salvation. And so the filling of the Spirit can't happen before the baptism of the Spirit. So if you're here this morning and you've never investigated the true Christ for who he is, for what he's done, and not just for who we want him to be, but all the promises he's made, then this might be a little bit of a snoozer message or a little bit difficult to kind of follow. But uh, I have something for you too. And uh, so I have kind of a silly illustration to kind of start us off and get us pointed in the right direction. So let's suppose I have a a new convertible with the top down in my driveway. And uh, I just went out for a nice sunny drive. And you come over to my house and shout up, Hey, Doug, I just put up the top on your car. I'm thinking, okay, why would you do that? I want to go out and drive again, you know. But if you came in and you said, Hey, Doug, it's pouring down rain. So I put up the top on your car. Well, I'd have a greater appreciation for what you just did. So the point is, is that we must know the bad news before the good news can make any sense. And so the bad news is this. God has a very high standard for us. Don't lie, steal, misrepresent him. Don't uh, commit adultery, murder. And um, this is called the law, as many of you know. And just as a, a U.S. judge requires a payment or for a penalty or a conviction, God also requires a penalty or a payment for our convictions. The difference is God sees us breaking those laws evenly, whether we we look at lying as less offensive than murder, but he sees them the same. And the other difference is the penalty is the same. He requires death. There's no community service in, in his courtroom. It's death. And so he knew that we couldn't live up to that standard. And so he sent his son, and what his son did was he took upon himself all of our sins, died on the cross, took those sins to the grave, defeated death, and now he lives at the right hand of the Father. And what we must do is put our complete trust in what he did. And that's a legally binding contract. It's called propitiation. And it means that Jesus, what he did, totally satisfied the wrath of God Um towards us, as he was looking towards us. And so, you know, what we have to do is turn to him, and after we do that, then we're able to turn from our sins. But you might say, well, I've turned from my sins, but I would ask, have you trusted fully, completely in Christ? Because if I'm a murderer and I stand up before a judge, and I say, judge, I killed this person 20 years ago, but I don't do that anymore, so can I go? He'd be crazy. I mean, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't be a just judge. So please, investigate the true Christ. Look into all that he has promised 
Uh, if you're here with someone, ask them the questions. There's lots more questions I know, and I'd be happy to answer them as well. Now, the second way in which the Spirit uh, works in the believer is the filling of the Spirit. And the filling of the Spirit is not an emotional experience. It's not an emotional high. At a previous church, um, I was required as part of the worship team after every service to come down front and be available to answer questions. Uh, it was a very large church, so the pastor couldn't handle just all the people rushing down or whatever. Um, and a lot of times it was just talk, but most of the time I heard this. Man, that, we were just, this place was just filled with the Spirit tonight. We were just so moved. And I would challenge them with, well, I wonder why I didn't feel the Spirit. And that led into more conversation, more conversation. But the truth is, they were influenced by or had an emotional pull or draw because of the music. They, were, uh, they enjoyed it or um, it resonated with them in some way. But it wasn't the Spirit. The second problem with that idea is that it gives the impression that there's two types of Christians, the elite or the average. And it's because some hear or feel the feeling of the Spirit and others miss it. Well, it's not that at all. We're all to be filled with the Spirit. And so the filling of the Spirit simply means to be controlled or influenced by God the Spirit. Well, how do you get that definition, you might say? Well, there's two things that lead me to this definition. The first one is the contrast between drunkenness and the filling of the Spirit. Have you ever noticed the contrast? Um, in Luke 1.15, Zechariah was talking to an angel, and he was told that his wife Elizabeth would have a son, and he was to be called John, and he was going to be great before the Lord. Uh, he would not drink st- uh, wine or strong drink, but he would be filled with the Spirit. In Acts 2, it begins with the filling of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the people were mockingly looking, hey, look at these guys, well, they're drunk with new wine. And Peter's like, no, they're not drunk with new wine, it's only like the third hour of the day. And uh, he said, this is what Joel the prophet was speaking of. Well, the one that really contrasted to is Ephesians 5.18. And it says, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. So we find this constant contrast between drinking or drunkenness and the filling of the Spirit. When a person's intoxicated, we say that he is under the influence of alcohol. DUI, driving under the influence of alcohol. So by the contrast... I see that the filling of the Spirit means to be controlled or influenced by the Spirit. The second thing that leads me to this conclusion is the vocabulary. There's many words in the New Testament that mean fill or fulfill, but there's only three that refer to the filling of the Spirit. And the first word is pimplemi, and it's used in Luke 4.28 in the response to Jesus when he was teaching or when he was speaking to the disciples and telling them 
that he was going to go away, or I'm sorry, uh, he was speaking in his own hometown, and uh, the people there, they were just so filled with wrath that they just wanted to kill him. So he was in his own hometown preaching. And the second is in the same book, Luke 167. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. God, in his sovereignty, just took control of him, and he prophesied. The second word is plerao, and it's used in Ephesians 5.18. We're going to look at this in a little more detail later on. But it says, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And the same verb is used in John 16.6. The Lord tells his disciples that he's going away. And he says, because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. When we're sorrowful, we can hardly think of anything else. I mean, it just controls us. It just takes over. You know, my dad uh, went home to be with the Lord at an early age, in my opinion. And it just controlled me. It was the most sorrowful experience I'd ever had. And it just controlled me for years. And uh, just as sorrow can control and influence, the Holy Spirit can control and influence. Well, the third word is an adjective, and it's used in Acts 13.10. And Paul uh, is confronting Elymas the sorceress and, uh, because he's trying to preach, and this guy's you know, keeping him from preaching the gospel. And he says, You are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. Those are strong words. But it was true. This guy was nothing but motivated by fraud and deceit. And the same adjective is used of Barnabas in Acts 11.24. It says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Spirit and full of the faith. So I take it the filling of the Spirit is, it means to be controlled or influenced by God, the Holy Spirit. So you say, all right, Doug, God bless you, man. Thanks for filling in today. You know, appreciate the, the Greek vocabulary lesson, you know. Uh, why is this so important? You know, big whoop, big deal. Um, tomorrow is Monday, and I've got to face all those pressures that you were talking about. Well, it's so important because people think that we receive more of the filling of the Spirit. We receive more of it. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit is a person He's not a divine filling station that we go fill up on or top off on when the price before the price goes up. He's a person. When we receive the filling of the Spirit, we receive all of the Spirit we're ever going to get. So if it means controlled or influenced by God the Spirit, which we just established it does, then the issue is not getting more of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit controlling and influencing more and more of us. That's the issue. And so this leads us to our next question, how can this happen? How can we be filled with the Spirit? Well, I'm amazed that there's no 12 steps, 40 days, or seven keys to the filling of the Spirit. I just don't see it. I do see uh, a few hints, though. And I'd like us to take a look at two passages for this. The first passage, and if you'll turn your Bibles to chap, uh, John chapter 7, verse 
37 through 39. John chapter 7, verse 37, beginning there. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now it's obvious this is talking about the Holy Spirit. It says so. And it must be talking about someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit because it says out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's so controlled and influenced that he's going to be a blessing to other people. Uh, And now the question we're trying to answer is how can this happen for us? So let's look at verse 37. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's it. Come and drink. Right? Well, what does that mean, you say? Well, verse 38. He who believes in me, coming and drinking of Christ, is the same as trusting in Christ, believing in Christ. Now, notice it doesn't say praying to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't even say trusting in the Holy Spirit. It says, he who believes in me. And he's talk- that's Christ talking there, referring to himself. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ, John 15 and 16. And it's the work of Christ to glorify God. Matthew 17, uh, he says, um, this is my son who I'm well pleased. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ And when we continuously put our trust in Christ, God the Holy Spirit gets busy in my life and in your life. Now, I have this illustration uh, to help us out a little bit there. Um, And I'm hoping everyone's heard of a car that's a standard transmission or a manual transmission. It's the opposite of an automatic. And the idea behind that is that you match the actual speed of the car with the engine speed, or the RPMs. It's, it's, you've either experienced it or you've seen someone where, you, you know, inevitably when you're first learning, you come to a stop sign, you're on a hill, there's a car behind you, and you're like, oh no, what do I do? And everybody's kind of bobbleheading, you know, when you're jerking a herky-jerky. Well, let's say we're going on a road that has a 90-degree curve, and we're going a little bit too fast, and we're not we're not positive that that's a turn. We've never been on the road before. Typically, you would downshift, and then you would power through the corner. But when you're going too fast and you don't know it's there, typically people just jump on the clutch and ride the brake around the corner. When you get to the other side of that corner, you have a decision to make. What gear do I put it in to match my actual speed so that I can use the optimal uh, power of the engine to go out of that corner? So if you upshift and you happen to be going slower, what happens? The car kind of bogs down. 
If you downshift and you happen to be going faster than you should, then the engine revs and everybody kind of goes through the windshield. Let's say you just happen to hit the right gear. What happens? You smoothly transition and you have all the power to power out of that, that corner. Well, just like a car has all the power under the hood and needs the right gear to optimally function, we have all the power of the Holy Spirit within us already. How are you going to put it in the right gear? Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Begin each day with, Lord, I can't please you on my own. I can't do this day by myself. I'm trusting in you. When I was studying for this, and even this morning, Lord, this is beyond me. I need you. I can't do this. But how would it be if I was nervous and I stood up here to teach on the trust of Christ? Uh, it was a great thing to be filled with the Spirit this morning. Trust me, it was. Um, well, another clue is in Colossians chapter 3. So if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, hey, wait a minute. That doesn't say anything about the filling of the Spirit. It doesn't say anything about the Spirit. How do you know it's talking about the Spirit? We'll turn back to Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Were you paying attention to the results of each passage? The similarity of the results of the filling of the Spirit are parallel to letting the Word richly dwell within you. These are parallel epistles. They were written by Paul at the same time, delivered by the same messenger to churches less than 100 miles away from each other. So there's parallels in them. If you can't understand something in Ephesians, go to Colossians. If you can't understand something in Colossians, go to Ephesians. They're sister par- uh, epistles. Um, and this is known as correlation, what we just did. It's a vital component of all Bible study that's often left out. And it's why you hear people say, well, 
everybody has their own interpretation of the Bible. How can you possibly know what it says? Well, yeah, when man works by himself on his own, he can make the Bible say whatever he wants to. But if you're baptized by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and if you allow God to interpret his word through correlation, that is, Scripture interprets Scripture, then you can only have one interpretation with a few applications. The filling of the Spirit is parallel to letting the word richly dwell within you. Now, what does that mean as far as what we're studying here today? It means to have a heart of simple submission and obedience to God's word. The only way that God's word can influence us is if we're in it day and night. If we read it in the morning, it influences us. If we go out into the world, the world influences us. So it's important to come back at night and be rightly influenced again. And it's not just reading it, it's soaking in it. It's meditating on it. So when we put these together, John uh, chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, and Colossians 3, 16 and 17, we put those together, we get trust and obey. It's just that simple. When we trust Christ and obey the scriptures, that's when God the Holy Spirit goes to work and we can be filled with the Spirit. Well, so that leads us to another question. What does it look like? What are the results? For this, let's stay in Ephesians 5:18 and through verse 21. I don't think I put that in the notes, but uh, it's through verse 21. And the first result we see here is music. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. If you were here last year for the Prophecy Conference, you probably heard Dr. Tim LaHaye say that he was so glad when he was up here teaching, that he could hear the pages of the Bible turning. And he said an evidence of a dead church was that no one brought their Bible, opened the Bible, or was turning the pages when a particular text was being taught. Now another evidence is a lack of singing. Dead churches don't sing. They just kind of moan and groan the song out or, or mouth the words. Did you notice it says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all different kinds of music? We have in in many churches today this idea of uh, worship wars. What a paradox in the church to hear worship wars. It means that traditionalist people, they won't sing the contemporary songs, and the contemporary people won't sing the traditional songs. It says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all different kinds of music. The church should not be divided by traditional and contemporary music. Now, in the church I mentioned earlier, it was a very large church, and there were two auditoriums. The first auditorium was temporary while they finished building the second one. 
And when they finished, they decided, well, we're going to have a contemporary service in this one and a traditional service in this one. But we'll simulcast the message so that everybody has the same teaching. And when a large church makes a change, there's a lot of things that happen. One thing is you don't see the same people you're used to seeing. It would be like coming in here today and not seeing the people you're used to seeing week in and week out. But when those people do see each other somewhere down the week, and I heard this constantly because I was always there, you'd hear conversations like this. Hey, how you been? I haven't seen you in so long. Where are you, where are you now? Oh, we're, we're going to that 10 a.m. You know, contemporary service. And what about you? Oh, we're, we're faithful to that 8 a.m. traditional service. The big, we call it big church. Now, I didn't dramatize that very well. But if I did, you would have heard the pride that kind of came out of some of those conversations of, you know, we're, we're here and we're staying faithful here and stuff like that. So the church should not be divided over traditional and contemporary music. Those who are filled with the Spirit sing all kinds of different music. The second result is giving thanks. Verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's way different than 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, give thanks in all circumstances, or in everything, depending on your translation. That's easy. We can give thanks in any circumstance, right? In, in light of the recent tsunami, right, down in Santa Cruz with all the boats, one could say, oh, thankfully your boat was tied to the dock. If it wasn't, well, thankfully it didn't drift out to sea or something. If it did, well, thankfully it didn't get damaged. If it did, well, thankfully it didn't get more damage. If it did get more damage, well, thankfully it didn't flip. Well, if it did flip, thankfully it didn't sink. If it did sink, well, thankfully you could recover it. Well, if you couldn't recover it, well, thankfully you have insurance. If you don't have insurance, well, thankfully you enjoyed it while you had it, right? I mean, the point is we can always find something in which to give thanks in. But that's not what this is saying. It says, giving thanks always and for everything. So, Doug, you're saying when your dad went home to be with the Lord early, you gave thanks for that. I didn't say I immediately gave thanks for that. Remember, I said it controlled me for many years. But I learned many, many, many lessons from that. I could have gone through most of my life, or all of my life, and never got the full the fullness of God's promise of being a father to the fatherless. When a person is filled with the Spirit, he begins to see from God's perspective. He sees his sovereignty, and he gives thanks because he sees God at work. But I haven't achieved the always yet. But that doesn't mean that we can't, because we're talking about results of the filling of the Spirit. So it's not something I'm doing. It's something that God is doing in me. The third result is submitting to one another. 
Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this isn't being a doormat and just allowing yourself to be walked all over. This is submitting your well-being to others. You're walking with others. You're concerned with others, thinking of others, and not just yourself. And notice these are, these are results of the Spirit's work. It's the, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. And one of the ways he does that is to reproduce Christ's likeness in us so that we become more and more like him each day. Well, a summary statement of all this is we trust in Christ, we obey the scriptures, we can be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit produces fruit in us, and we bear the fruit, which is the results. Those are the actions or deeds. We don't produce the fruit, we just bear it. So there it is. What the filling of the Spirit is, how you can be filled, and what it should look like. What are the results? In its simplest form, it comes down to just trust and obey. Now notice the order. First trust, then obey. That doesn't mean it's a works-based system. It's not one time we trust and then we spend the rest of our life trying to obey. It's a continuous thing. Trust, obey. Trust, obey. And just put that on a loop and lock it in your brain. Now, my son, uh, Colby, and I have a relationship. And he's nine months old. And it's slowly becoming a better relationship. He trusts in me more and more each day. You know, he's, he's starting to reach for me now. He knows that, that I'll pick him up. The relationship is there. Uh, He's part of our family. But guess what? He's never obeyed me once yet. So obedience comes later. It's for his well-being. He doesn't maintain the family status by obeying. He's already already in the family. So trusting comes before obedience. So look, look at verse 18 again. Ephesians 5.18. It means be being filled. Keep on being filled. We can't live on yesterday's experiences or last year's message or, or last week's blessing. We have to continuously be being filled and trusting and obeying. But there's more. It's an imperative. It's a command. Um, notice the first part again. It says, don't be drunk. We take that very seriously. A while back, I was talking to a pastor, and um, he was counseling another pastor. And this other pastor casually said to him in conversation that, well, after Sunday, I usually grab a six-pack and go down and hang out with the guys to get to know him a little better. This pastor I was talking to said, wait a minute, you said what? The point is, we find that crazy. We take that very seriously. If our pastor here was doing that, I don't know if I would do what Galatians says, which is restore a brother. I would probably, knowing myself, grab my family and run as fast as I could. We take that seriously, don't we? 
we should take the next part just as serious. Be filled with the Spirit, which is controlled or influenced, being influenced by God the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for the third person of the Trinity who gives us power and influence to please you. Help us to trust and obey your word as we allow to allow it to richly dwell in us. Produce fruit in us that we may bear the results of melody in our hearts, a gratitude for you, and concern for others. Father, please renew our minds by your word and don't allow us to leave here unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen.